Hope y'all are doing well. We are in our Christmas series. <clears throat> um, we're studying through uh, an unlikely scripture passages uh, for the month of December. Instead of the, the early parts of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we're actually in the last chapters of John, John chapter 14 through 21. And so, uh, as you can see from the video that we just looked at, um, we're, we're talking about Jesus being sent. And so Jesus was sent um, to us by God, and that's kind of the point of Christmas. That's the Christmas message, is that Jesus was sent. So over the last few weeks, in the book of John, chapter 14 through 21, uh, we're looking at different passages that talk about um, the fact that Jesus was sent. And so we're seeing in each sermon reasons why Jesus was sent. So we've seen that Jesus was sent so that we could receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent um, in order to help us see or reveal to us that we're sinners, but also to die for sin. And today we're looking at uh, John chapter 17, which is Jesus was sent so that we can know God. Uh, and so today we're going to unpack that, hopefully as fully as possible, um, the idea of what it means to know God. So uh, I am uh, not just preaching to you, but I'm preaching to myself very much so this morning, um, uh, so that after all, after all this is over um, today, not all this, but after the sermon's over, after we've looked at the text, that every one of us would deeply, deeply desire to leave here um, wanting to know God, wanting to know Him far more deeply than possibly what we already do, and be convinced that it's, it's the greatest reality in the world um, that God has invited us in. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. As I said, we'll be in John chapter 17. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your mercy that you've given to us, specifically in Christ. We thank you that this season reminds us that Jesus not only came, but that he was sent. He was sent by the Father for a specific purpose, for specific reasons. One day that we would receive the Holy Spirit for those that are in Christ, to show us that we're sinners, but also die for us. And then today, as we see, he was sent so that we could know you. So God, help us understand today um, is as difficult of a complex kind of concept this is. Give us understanding of what it means to know you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17. I'll show you the specific texts that talk about Jesus being sent, but you can see in verse 3, uh, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can see it also in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave to me, that they have received them and have come to know you in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. You can see it in verse 21 and 22. Uh, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may be, may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And verse 23 says, I and them and you and me, so they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. You can see over and over this, this pattern, specifically in this text, on the fact, in this passage, that um, Jesus was sent to us. Jesus was sent by the Father. So his birth is not like any other birth. Our birth, we weren't, I wasn't sent to the world specifically like Christ. Christ already lived before his birth and then was sent. I didn't, and you didn't, none of us lived before we were born. He already lived and was sent to us. So um, 
this text is, or this particular sermon series we're looking at uh, about Jesus being sent is, is absolutely amazing. Now, I want to read a, a, a story to you this past week, uh, and it leads us into uh, some of the things that we're going to be talking about, even our, our first point on, on the fact that Jesus was sent. Wheaton College this week, Wheaton College is a very prestigious uh, Christian college, very much Christian college. Um, it became a subject of controversy this past week because there was a professor there who said that she was going to uh, declare that she's going to be wearing, I'm going to probably pronounce it wrong, the Muslim hijab, hajib, something like that, for the holiday season, it's kind of the head covering, for the holiday season. And the reason why she was going to do it was to express solidarity with the Muslims. Um, so that's maybe controversial, uh, maybe not so much, but maybe a little bit kind of controversial. But after that, um, it got far more attention and then it became even more controversial for her because after uh, what ensued is that she went on to Facebook and posted um, the reason why she's doing that is because she believes that Muslims and Christians worship the same God at a Christian professor at a Christian university. So wearing the hajib isn't necessary, hajab, however you pronounce it, is, is somewhat maybe controversial, but I don't think so. I think we, we can certainly be kind to Muslims. That's, that's what we're called to do as Christians. But after that, um, this, this putting on, or, or the statement, I should say, of saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God, this is far more controversial than just saying that you're going to wear that uh, hajib thing, and which brings me into the head covering, which brings me into kind of my first point. But I want to read the text so that we can get the full context. John chapter 17, normally uh, we kind of pick a longer passage and dissect it point by point through the text. It's a little bit different today. I'm going to do that in some respects, but I'm also going to uh, take a step back and, and just kind of give us important facts about a concept in the Bible here, a concept. So uh, it's a little bit different than normal. Um, the concept of knowing God, I want, to, I want you to see know five truths or five facts about what it means to know God. Verse 1, chapter 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to his heaven and to, eyes to heaven and said. So here we are, the end of Jesus' life. This is hours before he's going to be arrested, hours before he's going to go to the cross. This is the very end. He's already had the Last Supper. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, where we know it's the place where he sweat blood. And in this particular time, this is the content of that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he dies. And he looks up to his father and he says, Father, the hour has come. He, he rec recognizes that he's going to the cross. And he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. He knows that he's going to the cross and his heartfelt desires as he goes to the cross is that the father would receive glory for what's going to take place and that as his father receives glory, that he himself would receive glory. So uh, this isn't a selfish act for the son to want to receive glory. He's also God and it's absolutely crucial that the that God the Son received glory for what he's going to do. And, that, and this is what he says. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life. So this is what eternal life is. That they know you. That they know God. They know who God is. And then he says, the only true God. So for pinpointing who the only true God is... It's the one that Jesus is talking with. It, there isn't a, a God up there that every religion kind of gets to. There's one true God, 
And Jesus is talking to him. So we know that the only way to know God is through the Son. And notice how he says it. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So eternal life is bound up in knowing Christ, coming to know him, who is God, and by knowing Christ, then you know God. And so the first fact I want you to Jesus sent so we could know God, um, the, the title of the sermon is Five Facts to Know About Knowing God. Five facts to know about knowing God. So there's things you need to know about what it means to know God. And so the first thing is this. Knowing the one true and living God is the same as knowing Jesus or and only by Jesus. I know that sentence is a little, little strange, but the idea is this. The only way that you can know God, the first fact you need is the only way that I can actually know God is only possible through Jesus. It's not through any other... T- any other ways besides Jesus. John 14, 6, Acts 4, 12, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there is no knowing God the Father, knowing who God is through any other way besides Christ. Therefore, we don't share the same God with not just Muslims, but, but any other religion because there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The same thing with Acts chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the first thing, as we're going to talk about knowing God and what it means to know God, uh, what, what we're being kind of invited into, what it means to know God, the first thing we have to realize is we're not talking about a grand, huge God that every religion is, is taking a part of. Instead, there is only one true God, and it's the God of the Bible, only known through Christ. So the first thing is that knowing the only true and living God is the same as knowing Jesus, and it's only by knowing Jesus. It's only by knowing Jesus. So that's the first Thing that and it's I mean it's the absolute ground level foundational thing before we go into the rest of these is that knowing God is only made possible through Christ. You can't know God any other way except through Christ. Now, I want you to see the next. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. All right, so notice this prayer again. Father, the hours come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And and in this, we're going to see uh, a little interplay in the hierarchy of the Trinity. It doesn't mean that, when I say hierarchy, it doesn't mean that uh, the Father is somehow more God than Jesus. Jesus is still God. There is deference to, from the Son to the Father. But in his essence, um, in his essence, Jesus is still 100% God. Um, but we're going to see, for sure, deference here from the Son to the Father. So the Father has decided from eternity past who will be the children. Notice how he says it here. Father, glorify your son, um, that the son may glorify you since you have given the son, you have given Jesus authority over all flesh. Here it is. So the son has authority to do what? He has the authority to give eternal life. So the son's job is giving eternal life to whom? Here it is. To all whom you have given him. So the father has decided 
who are the ones that are going to come to know Christ, who are, are the ones that are going to be the recipients of eternal life, and he's given Jesus the authority to be able to extend eternal life to them. So that means the Father has given Jesus the power to extend eternal life to come and know God. So here's the second thing I want you to know. The first one is it's only made possible through Jesus. The second one is this, is that you have been chosen by God to know him. You have been chosen by God to know him. This is a jaw-dropping, amazing thing. Um, let, me, let me try to do my best to illustrate what I'm saying. Let's say that you... Um, I know this never happens. <laughs> let's just pretend it happens. This, this, this is crazy, right? But let's just pretend this were to happen. You follow your favorite celebrity on Twitter. Um, sports figure, actor, war hero, political figure. I don't know who your hero is. But you have a celebrity that you love. You absolutely love them. And you follow them on Twitter. Now, this might work in Facebook world, but I don't, I don't understand Facebook. I don't have it. So let's just, I understand Twitter. So let's just use the Twitter analogy. All right. And I know this never happens, but you follow your favorite celebrity, whoever it is, Tom Brady or Brad Pitt or whoever it is. Um, and then randomly, one day they, they tweet out something on, on Twitter and you never do this. You know, it's, not, it's not like you to do this, but you write something back. You, you write something back that's just amazingly witty. Like it's, it's amazingly profound and witty, okay? And when you do, this never happens either, but they see it and then they write something back to you. As a matter of fact, they follow you on Twitter, which means now you can direct message privately and they send you a private direct message and they say something like, you're hilarious, you're so witty, you're so profound. Um, I want you to call me. And so they send you their, their phone number, and then you are just astounded, and you double, triple check, is this really a verified account? Is this some kind of fake thing? And you go back, and to your dismay, it, it, or to your delight, it actually is. It's a verified account. It's really them. Your favorite celebrity has just reached out to you um, randomly and invited you in to know them, invited you in to know them, and sends you this direct, want you to call me. So you go back over, you triple check, it is verified, and then you go to the phone number and you call them up. And sure enough, on the other line is your favorite celebrity. And they talk to you for half hour to an hour or whatever. And they tell you all about themselves. They invite you in to know all about them. And after you get off the phone, you're just like, oh, you're so giddy, right? You're like, what's the first thing you do? I got to tell everybody. I got to tell, da, 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 da. I got to tell. Like, I can't believe it. How, how, are, you, how are you feeling at this moment? Now, I know this never happens, but let's just pretend something like that happened. And I want you to pretend like you have just been given a personal invitation from your absolute, like, awesome, most favorite celebrity to know them personally. How would you feel at that moment? All right, I think you know where I'm going here. Something better, infinitely better, infinitely better has happened already. The God of the universe has chosen you to know him. I'm choosing you, and my invitation is that I'm extending to you that you get to know me. I'm inviting you in to know everything there is to know about me. That should be jaw-dropping amazing to us. I don't think that we sometimes overflow with the same feelings 
that if our favorite celebrity did it. I think that we would be sometimes far more giddy about Brady inviting you in than Jesus. Because we've read the scriptures and we think we know everything about him. But he's infinite. There's never a time where he will run out of more things for you to get to know about him. The God of the universe, only by Jesus, has invited you in to know him. Christian, you have been chosen by God to know him. This, there is no greater privilege in the world than being invited in to know God. The greatest, highest, most chief being ever has personally sent you the Twitter direct message, if you will, and said, I want you to know me. I mean, that, don't import human wisdom on that. If somebody's saying, hey, I'm inviting you in to know me. You're like, well, that sounds weird. This is God. It's a divine initiative. God's inviting you in to know him. Let your mind feel the weight and wonder of that, that Jesus was sent to the world so that you could be personally invited into the king's throne room to know him. You're not invited into the king's house, per se, to live in the house. You're invited into the throne room with the king to sit and have a relationship, to know him. So it's not like you're just well acquainted with the walls. Look at the walls and the pictures. I get to be in the king's house. That's not the invitation. It's not that you're invited to where he lives so much so is that you're invited to know him. Sit with him. Know him personally. You're invited. The, the second fact is you have been chosen by God specifically to know on the most deep, intimate relationship, God. And he has done everything. He has absolutely orchestrated everything for it to happen. So the first fast fact or fun fact or five facts <laughs> is that it's only through Jesus. It is fun and fast, but it's also a, fat, a five facts. The first thing is that it's only through, only through Jesus. The second thing is that you have been chosen by God. Not everyone gets chosen to be invited into the relationship. And Christian, you have been. I mean, play out all the illustrations you can think about, you know, elementary, out on the playground where you don't get chosen. You know, you're always last, and I guess we have to have them on our team. Like, that's not it. It's not, I guess God's like, well, I guess he's on my team. It's no, it's he's chosen you to be not just his son or daughter to live in the house, but to live in the courtroom with him, on the throne, beside him, not ruling, but a personal relationship with him. I mean, this is jaw-dropping astounding. That's what we mean when we say that you have been chosen. Like, God has invited you to know him. First thing is only, th the, knowing Christ is only through, knowing God is only through Christ. The second one is that God has specifically chosen you, Christian, to get to know him. The second one is, um, from verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. So when you read that, uh, we can read that in two different ways. And I think most of us probably read it the first way. But I think that, uh, let me explain, the second way is actually the way. And it's all about the emphasis. Here's the third one. Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. The third fact is this about knowing about God is 
knowing God is eternal life. So the first way, which is correct, isn't the way I mean it. The first way that you could probably read this is say, um, I could say, knowing God is eternal life. And you think that means that if you come to know God here on earth, then you'll get to have eternal life, that you'll get to be in heaven forever. And while that's correct, that's not what I mean. I mean for you to read it this way. What I mean is knowing God is eternal life. So what I mean is this, the slight change in the way I say the sentence is showing that our entire life now is primarily to be made up of knowing God. Knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. Like eternal life is me getting to know God forever. So it's not that hey, you come to know God so that you can get eternal life and just be in heaven in his house. That's not what we're saying. We're saying eternal life is literally made up of knowing God. This is more than just knowing the way to eternal life. It is knowing the way to life. Eternal life is simply this, knowing Jesus forever. That's what we're saying here. Eternal life is being extended to you, saying not primarily that you don't have to die now, but primarily you get to know Christ forever. Eternal life is manifesting itself that you get to have true knowledge of the sender, God the Father, and the sent, God the Son. That's what eternal life is being extended to you saying. And this happens primarily, this happens because of, I should say, the gospel. The good news that Christ came to die for us on the cross and our sins would be forgiven. And since our sins are forgiven, we're invited into this. We're invited into this amazing relationship. Piper, in his book, God is the Gospel, pushes us to make sure we make this connection. He, he asks this question in the book. He says, why is it good news that my sins are forgiven? Why is it good news that my sins are forgiven? It's, it's an absolutely huge question to answer. He illustrates it this way. This is what he says. Consider, wh why do I want my sins to be forgiven? Consider an illustration of what I'm trying to say. Suppose I get up in the morning, and as I'm walking, this is Piper, not me. I'm walking to the bathroom. I trip over some of my wife's laundry, fill in whatever it is about your spouse that drives you crazy, and you happen upon that particular thing and that she left on the floor. Instead of simply moving the laundry myself and assuming the best in her, I react in a way that is all out of proportion to the situation and say something very harsh to my wife just as she is waking up. She gets up, puts the laundry away, and walks downstairs ahead of me. I can tell by the silence from my own conscience that our relationship is, right now is in serious trouble. As I go downstairs, my conscience now is condemning me. Yes, the laundry, room, the laundry should have not been there. Yes, I might have broken my neck. But those are just mainly the self-defending flesh talking. The truth is that my words were way out of line. Not only was the emotional harshness, harshness out of proportion to the seriousness of the fault, but the Bible tells me to overlook the fault. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 1 Corinthians 6, 7. So as I enter the kitchen, there's ice in the air. Her back is blatantly towards me as she works at the kitchen counter. What needs to happen here? The answer is plain. I need to apologize and ask forgiveness. That would be the right thing to do. Remember, 
Why do your sins need to be forgiven? This is what he says. The answer is plain. I need to apologize. But here's the analogy. Why do I want her forgiveness? Why do we want God's forgiveness? Why do I want her forgiveness? So that she'll make my favorite breakfast? So that my guilt feelings will finally just go away and I don't have to deal with that? That I'll be able to concentrate at work today so the kids won't see us at odds? So that she'll just finally admit that the laundry shouldn't have been there? It may be that every one of those desires would come true, but they're all defective motives for wanting her forgiveness. What's missing is this. I want to be forgiven so that I can have the sweet fellowship of my wife back. Forgiveness is so that he can have his wife back. She's the reason I want to be forgiven. I want the relationship restored. Forgiveness is simply a way of getting the obstacles out of the way so that we can look at one another again with great joy. So in context, why do we want our sins forgiven? It's not just to relieve guilt pains for sin. It's not just to stop sinning. But instead, it's so that all the obstacles are removed and you finally get God. Knowing God is eternal life. The reason why we want our sins forgiven, the reason why the gospel is so important is not just so that you can finally have forgiveness of sins. The reason why you want forgiveness of sins is that you finally get to have your relationship with God restored. This is why we want our sins to be forgiven, is to be able to know him. God is the gospel. This, this um, book, Piper, then leads into this devastating, devastating question. He calls it the crucial question for our generation and every generation. And when I first read this, I can remember reading it several years ago, just stopping at that particular moment, closing the book, and just thinking, what, do I have this all wrong? Am I so blind? This is what he says. Because at first I wasn't sure how to answer honestly the question. Not that I would ever admit it out loud. God is the gospel. This is what he says. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends on earth you've ever had to enjoy, all the food you've ever liked, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you've ever been able to see, all the physical pleasures on earth that you've ever tasted, and no human conflict ever again, no natural disasters ever again, could you be satisfied with that heaven if Christ wasn't there? You stop and you just think, I mean, it's pure bliss, but Jesus isn't there. What we're being invited in, into is not, um, salvation isn't given to you just to have all these things removed and you're invited into the pure bliss of heaven. While that is a kind of byproduct, what the gospel is primarily inviting to is the knowledge of God. That you finally have all the obstacles removed and now you get to know God, the creator of your soul. Piper says this, and people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven, primarily. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted 
by the gospel. So the third fact is this. Knowing God is eternal life. Eternal life is bound up in primarily that you spend forever as finite coming to know with an ever-increasing knowledge of Jesus forever. This is what eternal life is. Knowing God. So read it again. And this is eternal life that they know you. This know in Greek is gnosko. And this is a declaration of that we get to know continually God. It's more than just intellectual recognition. It is New Testament commentary. It doesn't refer to merely abstract knowledge, but to a joyful acknowledgement of his sovereignty, glad acceptance of his love, and a continual, forever increasing, intimate fellowship with this person. It doesn't mean that we receive full knowledge at the institution of the relationship or at the beginning of the relationship. It means that we come to know and learn to know him from a starting point and an ever-increasing knowledge of God. This is what we're being invited into. That's why Calvin says that this knowledge of him is truly and justly called saving. It's always continually happening. To know him transforms us to truly have this ever-increasing knowledge should transform us into a different quality of life as calvin says it's a knowledge which forms us completely anew now into the image of god from faith to faith we're now engrafted into the body of christ and we are partakers of the divine adoption and heirs of heaven this is an invitation into the supreme knowledge of the supreme ruler of the universe Jesus Christ himself has been sent by God so that we can know God. The only way to know God. So that's the third one, is that we are invited into this amazing thing, which is eternal life, which is knowing God. The fourth one, um, the first one is that it's only through Christ. The second one is that we've been chosen by God to know him. The third one is that knowing God literally is what eternal life is made up of. The fourth one is this, is that knowing God is literally the greatest joy we can have. We have uh, competing things for our affections all the time. And there are several, uh, whether it be from your own heart or from the enemy, trying to convince you that your greatest joy can be found in a multiplicity of other things. But none of this is true. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24 says this, Let him that boasts, boast in this. Or literally, let him who glories, glory in this. So all your boasting and all your glorying should be in this fact, that he understands and knows me. It is the greatest joy that you can have. All your boasting and all your glorying that you will do, that you'll ever boast or that you'll ever glory in, is in one particular fact, that you can understand and know God. Um, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says it this way. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. Calculated to thrill a person's heart. I would recommend, if you want to, read that book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Um, there are some things in here, specifically what I'm about to read right now, uh, that come from that. So knowing God is the greatest joy that we can have. That's number four. And he gives us in his book 
from knowing God, a, a couple keys, three keys to knowing God. So still under number four, uh, Packer tells you three keys to knowing him. Since it is the greatest joy we can have, this is what he tells you. Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. A matter of personal dealing. Meaning, whenever you come to know God, without question, you need to realize that God is going to deal with you about things. It, while it might be painful initially, it's, it's always in the long run the best. Knowing God is more than just knowing him. It's a matter of him dealing with us as he opens us up and, he's dealt, and he deals with us um, as he takes knowledge of us. So he's going to deal with things about you that aren't in line with who he is. So knowing God is a matter of dealing. He says we can have all the right notions in our head about ever, without ever tasting in your heart to the realities which they refer. So there's, there's all kinds of things that in our head we absolutely agree but your heart's supposed to taste those things too. And as your heart is going to taste those things, there's things in your life that have to be dealt with in order for you to taste. So the first thing is, since it is the greatest joy, know that as you're approaching this relationship or you are knowing God, the first thing is that it's a matter of personal dealing. The next thing is this, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. Not as he only going to deal with you, but it's a matter of personal involvement. Um, I might be... It's just because I know me better than most people. Um, very, maybe the most guilty of this. Not even with God, but in my own personal relationships. It's very difficult for somebody to actually get to completely know me. Because I don't engage them with all these ways. He says, no, our involvement with people is not just mind and will, but also with feelings. We need to, knowing God's a matter of personal involvement. My, my knowing God needs to be with my mind, with my will, so the way I think and the way I behave, but also with my feelings because it's a personal relationship. This might be difficult for you as well, but this is what God's inviting you, inviting you into. So knowing him means that you're going to be completely all in. You're not just going to know him with your mind and know him with your will. You're not just going to get to know him more and behave. You're going to be all in with your affections as well. Taste and see that the Lord is good, as Packer says, is meant to try fully with a view to appreciate the flavor. So you, when he's told you to taste and see that the Lord is good, it's meant that you would actually appreciate the flavor. Knowing God is not just an intellectual or volitional relationship, but an emotional one as well. As the psalm writer says, streams of tears flow from my eyes. When your law is not obeyed. So we are in knowing God to be in, not mindful of the fact that we're not just supposed to know with our mind and our will, but also completely with our emotions, completely with our feelings. The last thing that he says is this, knowing God is a matter of grace. Always remember that knowing God is a matter of grace. This is a relationship where at every single turn, the initiative of the relationship all throughout is always because of God. At every single turn, the initiative always lies with God. That's grace that he continually draws us in and lets us know him. We don't make friends with God. God makes friends with us. He brings us to know him by making his love known to us. The word know here, gnosko, is a sovereign grace word. It's pointing to God's initiative, both in 
all-encompassing by loving us, choosing us, redeeming us, calling us, and preserving us. It's a huge, full, full word whenever he's invited in, we're invited in to know him. It's a knowledge that implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness um, towards those whom God knows. It's a salvation forever. As Packer says, all my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. All my knowledge of him is absolutely dependent on the fact that he has a sustained initiative in knowing me. So, knowing God is the greatest joy we can have. There is no greater joy. And he tells us, whenever we come to know him, he's going to deal with us. It means we have to be completely involved, and at every turn, it's a matter of grace. And so I'm thinking about myself, and perhaps all of us, if that's the truth, it's the greatest joy. Why don't we do it all the time? What, what is it that keeps us from acting that way? If that's the truth, the greatest joy. I think that it's because we blindly or even sometimes knowingly are so willing to give away true joy to lesser things. And we get so full of lesser things, we have no appetite for the greatest. Let me illustrate it this way. This is from a book called A Call to Die by David Nasser. I want us to realize what it means to satiate our appetite with lesser things. How wrong it is. Even if, you, if it's a good thing, how wrong it is to satisfy your appetite with a lesser thing rather than God. Nasser writes, you and I are at the banquet table of God's presence and truth. But too often we're so full of junk that we're not even hungry. In actuality and spiritually, we're actually starving to death. We've settled for garbage instead of feasting on the nourishment God richly provides. There's a place in Calcutta, India called the place of the dying that Mother Teresa started. And her desire is that those who are going to die would have their last moments of life, um, an opportunity to die in dignity. They don't need to die in the streets. Let them die in a bed. In Calcutta, 70% of this population is the poorest city in the, in the world, Calcutta, India. Poorest city in the world. 70% of the homeless population have lung disease called tuberculosis. And when you walk down the street, you'll find thousands of old men and old women coughing up their lungs on the sidewalks. Day after day, hour after hour. This one particular man named Chris um, was there for a summer, and his ministry was to go out into the streets and find people that only had hours or just a day or so to live and then invite them to the house of the dying. Come with me. I'll give you a place to lie down. And upon their arrival to the house of the dying, their heads would be shaved, and they were given a shower and a bowl of hot food. Chris would replace their ragged, soiled clothes with clean ones. And there, these men and these women would sit with other dying people that coughed up their lungs into jars that was just passed around. And when that jar was full... They would throw it in the garbage with all the rest of the soiled, nasty clothes and the infested hair that they had shaved off their heads. Lepers would come into this particular place to die. And they came in with their flesh rotting off and their noses and their fingers and toes missing. 
Their clothes had the stink of rotted flesh. At the house of the dying, Chris and the other ministers would wash these leper skins and give them clean clothes to wear. The job of one of the workers at this place was to stick a syringe into their pus-filled sores and extract the poisonous disease, disease out. Each syringe was used over and over from person to person, day after day, until it was just too dull to pierce the skin, and then it was thrown into the garbage can. Chris said later, one thing that he begged not to do was to take out the garbage. He said the stench of the trash was almost absolutely unbearable. Can you imagine the disease, the ragged clothing, and the half-eaten food in the trash? The syringes. I begged them not to ask me to do it. It haunted me forever after the first time I took out the garbage. As soon as I walked out of the back door towards the dumpster, children came out of the alleys and ripped the bags out of my hands to see whatever there was. I yelled, don't eat this. It's disease-filled garbage. It's full of disease and death. But they were so hungry that they ate the garbage from the bag because it was all they could find. They had no other choice. And I wept, sobbing, as I saw them scramble through spilled jars of disease and clothing stained with rotten flesh and used syringes, trying to find any scraps of last night's dinner that a dying person didn't eat. Very disturbing image. Very disturbing image. But in all honesty, when we turn down the invitation of knowing God, this is exactly what we're doing. We're feasting at the dumpsters of the world. Many of us are just like those kids, scrambling for garbage. We elbow each other at the mall and at the theater in the backseat of home and work in the net and at our school, hungry for food, but the food we lunge at and fight for is not God, but it's rotten and diseased, and we eat it. Every time we fill our minds with sexually suggestive things or we make fun of someone else for whom Christ died or every time we value the praise of men more than the praise of God or every time we live to get revenge on other other people or every time we put anything else above God we replace the true joy in God with joy and lesser things we fill ourselves with that and we are so full of junk that we aren't hungry for the actual food that really satisfies and nourishes we might listen to a sermon here and there about God just a small little bite. But usually our souls are so full of garbage that we don't even recognize our need for God. I think that's why when we ask ourselves, this is the greatest joy there is. Why don't I? Why don't I have a continual, ever-increasing, sustained effort in knowing him? because we're already full of lesser things. Say it again to you. Knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. There is no greater joy. The fourth thing about knowing God is this, which I've already put up here. Knowing God is truly the greatest joy that we can have. Don't believe anything different than that. Don't forget that. Don't allow yourself to be convinced otherwise. It is the greatest joy that you can have. 
the fifth concept or the fifth fact about knowing God. And again, this, this is all about understanding this big idea of what it means to know God. Packer in his book says, there's a world of oceanful, vast chasm difference between knowing about God and knowing God. He sa- the, the fifth one is this. He doesn't say this, just I say this. Knowing Jesus is the greatest gift Jesus could give us. So it's not just the greatest joy. It literally is the greatest gift that he could give you. We're in Christmas season. I mean, imagine, this, this is ridiculous, right? So let's not import human understanding into divine gift, gifting. It would be ridiculous if I, on Christmas, said, Christy, my gift, the greatest gift that I could give to you is me. I give you the gift of me. <laughs> she would say, okay, but there better be something else. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, she should say that. And so we, we should not import that human understanding that that, that that sounds ridiculous into the divine gift. It is not ridiculous for God to say, the best gift I can give you is me. As a matter of fact, it is the only true thing. There is nothing better that he can give you, not forgiveness of sins, not uh, release from the curse, not finally getting to be in paradise, not getting to be in the, the king's quarters. The best gift he can give you is literally the relationship with him. So not only is, not only is it your greatest joy, it's the greatest gift he could give you. Each of us, as we're during this Christmas season, for our loved ones, we, we are looking for the best gift to give our spouse, the best gift to give our fiance, the best perfect gift to give to our children because we know that it will make them happy. Also, we know that it will make us happy seeing them get it. The gift giving isn't just primarily for the receiver, it's also for the giver. And realize that this is what God is doing when he gives us the gift of himself. He wants to give us and has given us the perfect gift, the best gift above all things, which is himself. And not only does it make us infinitely happy, but it makes him infinitely happy to be able to give us the best gift. So do not allow yourself to be forgetful of this or convinced otherwise because it's very easy, I mean very, very easy to be tricked to think that's not the case. I went to, a year ago, Sweet Frog. Um, when I went to Sweet Frog, I'd never been there before. And so when I, when I went there, um, I had, you know, I got a lot. So I, got, I let all the kids run in there. And if you've been there, you, you know my mistake. I mean, there's this just treasure trove of stuff. They got M&Ms and gold and gummy bears. And they get this whole sprinkles. And then, you know, like 12 different kinds of yogurt. I'm like, ah, just go ahead. And so they, they get the cup and they fill it up. And they, I mean, Aiden, he's just pouring everything he can get, like literally every side. And so it's time to pay. And I'm thinking, you know, two bucks, two bucks, two bucks, four. It's by weight. Now, weight? Why am I paying $30 for dessert? <laughs> but I let the, the, the beauty of the display alter my mind. In the end, I paid for it. Don't let, in the same way, don't let the beauty of someone trying to trick you saying, oh, no, this is truly the greatest gift you can have. Not Jesus, but sexual pleasure or job or status or even good things like finally getting married or having finally the number of children. Don't buy into or be convinced of or forget that that is not where you find your, your treasure. 
don't let the, the beauty of that shake your mind up and think. Like the beauty of that treasure trove threw me off where in the end I paid for it. You will pay for it if you think that created things are the place, created things are the greatest gift that you can get. God is the greatest gift you can get. And he's given it to you. God has always for his children been trying to give you a gift that brings your greatest happiness. The byproduct is forgiveness of sin. The byproduct is one day living in pure paradise. But the primary thing is you get to know him. You're invited into the relationship with him. The enemy's going to do his best to make you forget that day by day. The enemy's going to do his best to make you not believe that day by day. But the truth is, only because of Christ can you know God. The truth is that you've been chosen by Jesus to know him. And that knowing him actually is what eternal life is made up of. And it's where your greatest joy comes and it is the greatest gift you can receive. This is what we mean when we say Jesus was sent so that we could know God. Know God. We're going to a time of response here. We're going to sing a song to know your name. And when we sing to know your name, I want you to do your best mental import into all the weight of knowing Christ, that we are invited into knowing him. For those of you that might not be Christians, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to give you a chance to know how to know him because of the gospel. But for those of us that are believers, let's worship him because he's invited us into this amazing reality. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love and your mercy given to us in Christ. Thank you for this amazing reality that you have completely initiated everything. Only through Christ you have invited us into knowing you. We get to know you. And everything there is to know about you ever increasing forever. And it brings for us our greatest joy. And it is the greatest gift you can give us. God, be with us now as we respond to this amazing truth. We praise in Jesus' name.